All right. Last week, as you remember, Bharat went, Bharat went out to see if he could persuade Rama to come back and take over the kingdom, and Rama absolutely refused. So then Bharat had that classic inspiration where he took Rama's sandals and put them on the top of his head and carried them back to Ayodhya, installed the sandals as the, um, the king, and then ruled in the name of Rama for the time that he was gone. Absolutely thrilling story. Many times, you know, a lot of these epics, even in the context of Ananda, of course, which is very American, but just that picture of, of refusing to take the honor yourself but installing the sandals on the, on the altar, on the throne. You'll find many times in your life that you'll solve a problem by doing that. You'll take responsibility, but you won't take the glory. You'll just put the guru's sandals on the altar and you'll ruin his place. St. Teresa of Avila, later when uh, she was forced back to run her convent when she didn't really want to, and nobody wanted her to. It was the church's way of trying to control her revolutionary spirit was to try to lock her back up in her convent. And so she, when uh, it was big controversial because they were a very lax convent and she was known as a reformer and she was back there. So when they all came in, she, instead of sitting in the Mother Superior's chair, she put the Virgin Mary statue there. <laughs> and she was sitting next to it. And so then it was hard for people to be really mad at her. Of course, in the end, she won them all. But saints find the same solutions. She didn't know anything about the Mahabharata, I'm sure. But I mean, the Ramayana. Okay, so now what happens? We have no questions, I presume, of anything? No? You know, this story is so much simpler than the Mahabharata, but there's something so just exquisite about the, the beauty of the story. So now Rama was Rama and Sita and Lakshmana had been happily settled in this area, this particular forest. But after Bharat came, and they'd had to have that scene, and they'd learned that his father had died, and he saw his mother's, and the whole um, poignancy of it sort of spoiled the area for them. They didn't really want to stay there anymore because everywhere they went, they were having these sad thoughts about their missing brothers and their mother and their father being passed away. So they decided that they really needed to find another place to be. So they set off again. And all the way through, as I mentioned last week, you know, they're always encountering the force of evil in one form or another. Partly that's because we really need to understand that an incarnation like this, a a divine incarnation, doesn't come just to live. He's always having to combat the forces of evil. He was incarnated in order to suppress um, that ignorance in all its different forms. And in, in these epics, it constantly takes the form of one Rakshasha or another. So he's walking through the forest, and a huge Rakshasha appears again, and he grabs Sita, just is going to take her, and he says, I think I'll take this lady for my wife, or alternatively, I'll just drink her blood. You know, these are very ruthless creatures. And Rama became very agitated for a moment, and this is from time to time in this story, Whenever Sita is really threatened, then, then you find that Rama's uh, equanimity is, is touched. It's the only thing that causes his equanimity to be touched. And he, seeing Sita being mistreated in this way, for a moment he allowed himself to be angry with Bharata's mother, Kaikeyi. Because if it hadn't been for her, then Sita would never have been put into this threatening position. And they, they bring this into the story to say even the divine ones these feelings rush over us and we can't always uh, imagine ourselves to be immune. Plus, they're, 
there's always the effort on the part of the avatar, which is not always how they explain it when they talk about Rama, but the master really incarnates into the human world. And on a certain level, he lives through it, even though he's freer in his heart than we are, still the forces of this world do roll over them. But Lakshmana was not at all in despairing. He was only angry, and he just encouraged Rama to slay this demon and get Sita back. And so um, Rama began to fight, and this Rakshasha declares that he has a boon from God and that no weapons can injure him. And seeing these two warriors, he puts Sita down and figures he'll dispense with them first, and he picks them up and puts them on his shoulders. And they began, once it's proven to them that their weapons don't work, they began to just simply fight with this man with their own bare hands. You know, hand to hand, the Lord fights against the evil force. And even though evil can get a great deal of power, this is the other picture that's always in these stories, that it's not always effortless, even for the divine, to defeat these dark forces. That every ounce of our strength, because even the evil ones um, have access to power because they have within them, you know, the, the energy of the universe is just there. And even if your intentions are evil, still you can use the laws of magnetism and of willpower to use the force in a negative way. And then the power of the Lord has to struggle to win you back. And in this case, finally, Lakshmana and Rama, by their bare hands, just tore this Rakshasha apart and as it seems to be for virtually everyone he meets, they're all under some curse or another. And in the moment that the body is taken away, there's this remembrance that this was a curse that was placed upon me and that it it was destined that the Lord Rama would free me. And when he met him, and he, he rose free again. So he actually said, you know, go ahead and finish the job because now I am going to be freed from this dark birth. And I just, you can think about what the various lessons might be in here, but one of the greatest fears that all human beings have is this fear of the ending of our incarnation. But so often in this story, somebody's caught in some kind of a karmic situation and he has to play it out to the end, but then the grace of God comes and liberates him from it. And even if, you know, at that end point, you know, death comes even in a way that's not admirable, the story repeatedly tells us that if, if we act in relationship to God, that one way or another it will always, we get freed rather than continually cursed. And it's, it's something really worth remembering. So they went back to where Sita was, and she was, of course, very um, happy to see them. And then they went on on their journey, and they um, met, came to an old Rishi, and the Rishi was a very elderly one and was saying that, I've just been holding on to my body until Lord Rama would come. I've just been waiting for this incarnation. I knew it was coming. And now that you're here, I'll give up my life. And the Rishi says to Rama, I've accumulated a great deal of um, you know, power and uh, uh, boons through my tapasya. And now that I'm going to leave my body, I can transfer all that to you. And Rama says, I wouldn't take the kingdom from Bharata. I wouldn't go back on my father's word, I don't want that which is not mine by right. And so even though you could just offer this to me as a gift, what I have I want to earn. I don't want to just ride on on the work of someone else. So he simply refuses. And then that Rishi advises him to seek the advice of a certain sage 
um, about where you should go and what you should do. So they, uh, the rishis greet Rama and they say it to him, <coughs> you know, this is a beautiful forested area, but we're troubled here by the Rakshashas. And if you would come and live with us, then you can free us from, you know, these evil ones who are around. And then the rishis say, it's interesting, they just make this comment. Your ordinary householder citizens work and pay taxes, and those taxes increase the wealth of the, of the king. Well, the rishis in your kingdom do penance, do uh, rituals, and, and live a holy life. And the benefit of our, of our work also accrues to the king. It, it gives strength to his kingdom. It gives divine goodness. So in the same way that you have to protect all your citizens, you also have to protect us. So um, Rama accepts that he, this is a responsibility. First he protests. He says, you know, I'm not the king anymore. I've renounced the throne. That's not really my responsibility. But they say, but this is your karma of a kshatriya. Whenever people are suffering or need your help, a kshatriya is obligated um, to help them. So we're also hearing about the duties of strong people to protect the weep, weaker. So Rama agrees that um, he will stay in that area and he will also fight against the Rakshashas. Now Sita becomes a little afraid about this. And so she goes into a conversation with her husband about the duties of a, of a, a, a king and the duties of an honorable man. She said there are three kinds of sins, as she says, that mislead men. One is the inclination toward falsehood, to tell lies for your own advantage. The second is lust. And the third is violence. These are the things that men get involved in, the male of the species, she means, rather than humankind. She knows that Rama is the soul of, of truth and that he's, he's conquered any, any sensual desire, so he's not victim to lust. But she's a little afraid that his penchant for fighting is still going to trap him. And Sita assures her husband that she's not challenging him in any way, but she wants him to explain it to her. And that's when he says again that whenever people are helpless or suffering, those of strength, of kshatriyas who who have promised to help, um, have to do their duty. And you can't turn your back on it if if it's within your power to help. It's the duty of the kshatriya to do that, not of the brahman. The brahman is at another level, but the kshatriya has to do it. And it's also talked about because they say this is sort of a hint of what's going to come because the problem of the Rakshashas is really why um, Rama was born. We, we talk about them as Rakshashas as if they were incarnated as a separate species, but it's the problem of evil. In our age, just the same, Yogananda incarnated to conquer the Rakshashas, but they're not Rakshashas like this with big arms and you know eyes in their bellies and all of these strange looking things, but the country's pretty much in the hands of the Rakshashas right now, and we're always struggling against it. When uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta came to America, uh, and she was invited to speak at some Hollywood function, and you know, the Hollywood people, Mother Teresa and the Dalai Lama, these are like sort of the ones that the celebrities always liked, but she stood at a Hollywood gathering, I read this in the paper, and she chastised them for the, you know, for the quality of what they're putting out and the way that the, you know, the, 
the downward pulling energy of the entertainment that they have. And she declared that Hollywood needs more of Christ. And they were not pleased (laughs) at all to hear what she had to say. But just like Master spoke the truth to the wealthy people, even when they didn't want to hear it, Master said, God is not pleased when his wealthy children take from his poor children. And Mother Teresa said, God is not pleased by what all of you people are doing with all the time and power that you have. The Rakshas are in charge of the entertainment industry for the most part. So, um, in fact, there's a, there was a whole movement in Hollywood. Uh, I had a, an acronym, which I don't recall. But just, you know, the producers and the directors and the actors who had another attitude were trying to band together to create a whole, uh, you know, a parallel industry that was t- moving t- toward uplifting entertainment instead of the one that's so far down. So they settle in this forest, and ten years pass. When everybody's happy, ten years' time goes by quickly, and they just live, and Rama protects the rishis, and everything goes quite well. And then, now that they're coming toward the end of the exile, Rama decides he wants to visit the great sage Agastya. And Agastya lives in, in the south of India, and he's one of, like Brigu, he's one of the great sages. We've heard his name mentioned a lot recently because he, he left behind these predictive records, and Swamiji and others have recently um, unearthed documents that are reputed to be originating from sage Agastya, talking about their incarnations in their lives. It was Swami's reading from sage Agastya. <clears throat> that spoke about him working on movies and living into his 90s, and um, he refers to it often. So this is the same sage Agastya. They say he was so powerful, this is the myth that's told about him, that when um, Shiva and Parvati were having their wedding up in the Himalayas, and all the great souls of India were going up there, they left sage Agastya in the south so that the country wouldn't tip. (laughs) but he alone by himself was able to keep the country from tipping over and then they tell another story about a mountain that became um, swollen up with its own pride and it began to swell and swell and it was growing so big it was going to block the sun so they sent sage Agastya and he went to the mountain and the mountain had such respect for the sage that he bent over like this and then when he bent over uh, this, uh, Agastya pronounced that he would remain in that humble posture forever. So this particular mountain is very low, but spreads out over a very large area. These are the charming stories that are told. Then there's one more story about Sage Agastya, where he himself outsmarted two Rakshashas. One was named Vatapi, and the other was called Ivala. And Ivala had a boon. They always have these boons. I find it just so interesting how evil people get boons, because nobody is completely... Um, terrible. Hitler, in the beginning of his uh, rise to power, Master said um, it wasn't clear whether he was going to go toward evil or good. He had power, and how he was going to use it was not quite known. And Master tried in 1936 to get an appointment with him when he was passing through Europe. But it it wasn't meant to be. Amazing, isn't that so? Um, But so it's not, uh, It's nothing is clear-cut. But if I'll... Ilvala had this power that no matter how many pieces his body was broken into, he could just pull it back together again. And so he and his brother Vatapi were quite evil. And, um, excuse me, it was Vatapi who had the power. Let's see, it says it backwards here, but it doesn't matter. Let me just see how it goes. Okay. 
you know, he, um, Ivala would cook his brother, Vatapi. He would cut him up in pieces and he would cook him. And then they would feed him to a rishi. And then after the rishi had had the dinner, then Ivala would say, Vatapi, come out. And then Vatapi would reconnect and then tear out the, tear the, the rishi to pieces. Very gruesome, isn't it? But you can see if you have children in the audience how extremely interested they would be. <laughs> so in this way, you keep everyone very engaged in the story. So one day they tried to play this trick on Nagastya. But he, of course, had more power than these Rakshashas had. So they fed him in the same way. And then when they called, come out, come out, Nagastya just smiled and said, I have the power and I have digested your brother. And so then there was a, a great fight that Ivala, Ivala was enraged at Agastya and he started to attack him and all Agastya did, Agastya did was just look at the Rishi and he immediately was disintegrated into ashes. And it doesn't happen a lot in this story but the stare of a Rishi to disintegrate you into ashes is something you also have to be real careful about <laughs> and always keep it in mind. Okay, so Agastya um, you know, suggested that Brahma could just stay with him for the rest of his exile, but Rama said, no, I have a responsibility to the rishis, and so I have to spend my next years there. Of course, going back to that forest is what re- led to the abduction of Sita. So even though Agastya was offering to protect them from it, it was his destiny, and they had to carry it out. But Agastya assures Rama that he will be successful, and he praises Sita, whereas most women, he says, seek comfort and ease. Sita has embraced the life that her husband gave her without any complaint, which is advice to all women everywhere. Okay, so they're on their way back to their home. And they encounter this old bird that they think at first is a vulture. And it looks so scruffy. And Rama thinks it's another Rakshasha in disguise and treats it very gruffly. But this bird is actually Jatayu. And he's um, the... Uh, Vishnu rides on an eagle called Garuda, and Jatayu is Garuda's brother. But he's very old right now, and he's not, um, he's sort of a bit used up. But he speaks lovingly to Lord Rama, and he promises him, you know, I am am a bird of noble birth, although elderly now, and I know who you are, and I want you to know that I will always be nearby, and I will keep an eye on Sita which promise, of course, proves very important when she's abducted. So they set up a new place to live, and they settle in, and they realize that it's almost time. It's going to not be too long. They'll be back together again. Okay. So while they're just there in the forest, a female Rakshasha named Surpanaka comes by, and she sees Rama, and she thinks that he's so beautiful that she immediately falls in love with him and, and conceives of this tremendous desire to have him be her husband. Now, she's a big, ugly Rakshasha, and she's pretty sure he's not going to be interested in her in her present form, and Rakshasas can change their form. So she changes her, her form into an attractive woman, uh, and she goes to Rama and talks to him and asks, who are you, where did you come from, and they're just having a conversation. And... She's, she describes her own lineage as being noble in the Rakshasha, Rakshasha kingdom. She has noble lineage. And she, Rama says to her, well, why are you here? Why have you come to us? And she says, well, it's not proper 
really to speak of one's troubles to someone you've just met, but I have to tell you that God has inspired me to love you and that I, I want you to know that and that you should save me from the suffering of my, des- of my unfulfilled desire and run away with me with the Gandharva rites, the Gandharva wedding, they call it, where you simply run away. And that becomes a Gandharva wedding. Krishna does it once, or Arjuna in one of the stories too. And it's, a, it's a legitimate form of marriage. You just run away. And then she says, starts talking, Surpanaka Sur starts talking, my brother is, she's a sister to Ravana and all these great Rakshashas and Rama will have so much power and comfort and this is, you know, everything that you want and this skinny little human is nothing compared to me. Now Rama thinks that the joke has gone far enough and he, he laughs at her and he says, he starts teasing and pretending, you know, because Surpanaka says that this woman here is not really what you think she is, speaking of Sita, but she's actually a Rakshasha in disguise. You know, we project upon others our own reality. And Rama sort of jokes a little as if with Sita, oh yes, now you've found her out. This is what's really happening. But then when Rama comes and stands with Sita, Surpanaka gets very jealous and very angry. One of the examples is here of how lust blinds your thinking. Because she, he, she conceived of this desire for this man, she doesn't have any sense about what's going on here at all. She can't read the situation properly. She can't respond properly because all her judgment is destroyed by her desire. So she begins to threat, become threatening and Rama and Lakshmana just will have nothing to do with her now and they attack her. She becomes a Rakshasha and they fight with her as a Rakshasha. But instead of killing her, she's a woman, they mutilate her. They cut off her nose and then just send her off because she's evil. Now, Sorpanaka does have powerful relatives, brothers who are in charge of that forest. And she goes to her brother and says, this measly man has invaded our turf and look what he's done to me. And she weeps and wails and demands that she get vengeance. So her brother, whose name is Kara, sends um, an army out there to fight with Sita. And Sita explains, you know, how she really saw, I mean, uh, uh, Surpanaka explains that she really was completely unprovoked attack, that he, she was just there and nothing, she didn't do anything to deserve it. She doesn't talk about how she threatened his wife or anything like that. So he sends an army out to um, fight with Rama. And so Rama puts Sita safely away in a cave and he does battle. And he kills the general and that whole army. And then Surpanaka goes back to her brother and says, you know, they, all of them have been killed and the, the Rakshasha can't believe it. So he sends another powerful army and Rama kills all of them too. And finally he goes himself. And in the end he too is defeated. So he says, you have plagued, he, when this final Rakshasha comes, he said, you've been a plague to mankind and now I'm just going to take you And Kara can't believe that this mere man is going to kill him, but he does. And the, the effort, the sign here is that God himself has limitless power to subdue evil, no matter how many waves of generals and armies are sent against the Lord. If we just stand in that divine light, sooner or later all of those forces are defeated. One of the hardest things to understand about life, truly, is really how powerful God is, how powerful the divine is, 
and how in the end Dharma always brings victory. That's really what we're talking about. Now, this story is about people fighting with swords and overcoming each other or bows and arrows or whatever they're symbolically representing. But what they're really representing is there's these, these forces are always taking place. Every epic is a battle. The Mahabharata is a battle. The Ramayana is a battle. All of the, the Iliad and all of Homer's stories are all battles. It's, everybody's always fighting and killing one another. And uh, when the feminist movement was really strong... Women tried to claim that was because men wrote them all, and they're, one of the things they're prone to is violence. But that's not at all true. Because what we're really talking about is that we always have to be um, in the attitude of awareness that, that forces will come at us, that will try to take from us. In this case, we have Rama, and they're trying to take Sita from him. But really, it's just representing um, the power of divine focus, divine love, divine dedication, and then one force after another and one disguise after another just keeps being sent against that, and we just have to persevere in that light, even if we have to do battle sometimes unto death, because not every story ends happily in the short term. But the power of the divine to overcome the evil force is limitless. And just, you, you just, they say that you just listen to these stories and your consciousness is changed, it's almost superstitious, but it isn't really. Because you, you hear a story like this over and over, and last week I was talking about how just deeply into the consciousness of people raised with these epics, these stories really are. And, and you literally do find that the memory of these stories and the examples set really do give you courage. And they give you perspective. And they give you faith. Because Rama is an incarnation, and the power of his divine incarnation is always there, even though it's become somewhat of a myth now. Still, you have this, extra, this picture of extraordinary nobility and even human love and his loyalty to his wife and, and her loyalty to him and the fearless way in which he protects her and defends her and does his duty when it's asked of him. And when we... Uh, uh, constantly surround ourselves with noble stories. This is the whole principle of education for life, of you know, giving the children when they're young a foundation of heroes and a foundation of really noble images. Nowadays, with youth literature and so on, they're, they're just, they all try to make it so realistic and so trendy and so all these other things. They have no idea what they're, what they're taking away by not really raising children on these stories of classic heroism. Um, the, the copy of this book that I like so much was really written for young people by, the, I think, the first president of India or the, one of the first um, leaders of India wanting to re-inspire his country. Okay, now one soldier survives from this whole debacle where they're trying to avenge the sister, and that Rakshasha goes all the way to Lanka where Ravana lives. And he tells Ravana um, about all this that happens. And Ravana says, you know, well, I can't have all my soldiers killed like that. I have to go avenge myself, this puny man. And the messenger says, look, it's not likely that you're going to be able to beat this. Are you listening to me? This is, this is Rama and his brother. And all your generals and all their armies went against him, and they're all dead don't think you can just sail out there and do this. 
And so he says, but, but his power comes from Sita. And if you can spirit Sita away, then he will be so grief-stricken and so weak that you might be able to conquer. Now again, what begins to happen here is that when Ravana hears about Sita, all of a sudden a very improper desire arises in him. You know, this beautiful woman of this great king, of this mere man, and he's a, he has taken women from every country he's conquered, and he, he, can, he conceives within himself in that moment a great desire for Sita. Now what also happens here is that that desire blinds him to every other reality, and eventually Ravana just walks into his own destruction. He's powerful, he's rich, he has everything that he wants in the world, He doesn't need to do this. But the messenger describes to him this beautiful woman who's the wife of another man, and all of a sudden he has no peace. He wants to have that woman for his own. And thus, in our lives, these strange desires come in, especially improper desires, and sometimes lead us down a path that we never had to go down if we hadn't become so confused. I mean, I I won't speak for all of us, but we may may remember times when things like that happened to us, (laughs) where we just got a little confused. So, Ravana does remember. So Ravana then goes to that forest, and he has a a rakshasa there named Maricha. Now, Maricha is the same rakshasa that back when uh, Vasishtha came to get Rama and Lakshman and took them to the forest when they were just 16 years old and wanted them to fight against the Rakshasas who were spoiling his yagya, his uh, ceremony. Maricha was one of those Rakshasas, and he didn't kill him, he just tossed him very far away. So Maricha has had experience of Rama. So Ravana comes and um, tells Maricha that he wants his help in stealing uh, Sita away. And Maricha says, I know this man. And he reminds them that, you know, you don't have a boon against the reason against being killed by man. See, Ravana has this boon that he can't be killed by the gods, he can't be killed by any other rakshashas, but he he left out man because man didn't seem powerful enough. So Maricha says, I know this man, you do not want to, you do not want to do this. So Ravana is um, a little bit thoughtful about it, and he goes back. To, to Lanka and decides maybe this isn't such a good idea. But then when he gets back to Lanka, Surpank, Sur, how do you say her name again? Surpankana, Sur, Surpanka shows up. She's the woman Rakshashi who's been mutilated and she's a sister. And she comes into his court and she's all mutilated and she's a woman scorned and she's angry. Here's another example that we have of a classic situation. Woman scorned. And interesting, when she tells Ravana the story, she, she leaves out the part about her desire for Rama and Rama um, scorning her. She just says that she saw Sita, because she knows her brother. And Sita's such a beautiful woman. She shouldn't be with that weak man over there. I went to steal Ye- Sita to bring her to you. That was what I really went to do. Now, isn't it amazing how we just spin the story so it'll work for us? Because she's enraged, a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So she tells about Sita, and she says, you're here, and uh, this man has killed all your soldiers, 
and you're just living here in your palace and you think that you're safe and he's running free and there's this beautiful woman that really should be, belongs in your life and not in his and you're just sitting here. So once again, Ravana's overcome and he feels that Maricha has misled him. So he goes back to Maricha and he comes again. Maricha's not at all happy to see him and now Ravana has a plan. And Ravana tells Maricha what the plan is. He said, you can change your form. I want you to change yourself into a magic deer. Make yourself so beautiful and so magical that Sita, like any woman, will be uh, entranced by you and will demand of her husband that she have possession of you. And you will have a magic attracting force. Maricha says, this is crazy. You know, who has told you that you, you should do this? What kind of madness has descended upon you? This is folly. You're going to get all of us killed, including yourself. And Ravana says, sometimes a king asks for advice. This is not a time when I am asking for advice. And Maricha just has to say, then we will go, we will do, I will do this for you, but none of us will live to see the end of this. So, He says, Maricha says, I'm going to die anyway because if I disobey you, Ravana has promised to kill him. He said, but I'd rather die at the hands of an enemy than at the hands of my own king. So he just agrees. So Maricha changes himself into this deer that is gold on one side and silver on the other and sparkles with jewels and is just so utterly attractive. And he begins to frolic around the ashram. And he's always just a little bit out of sight. But he shows for a minute, and then he shows for a minute. And just as Ravana knew, Sita becomes completely entranced with this deer. She begins to say, oh, our time here is almost finished. You know, surely we could take that deer back, and he could be a pet for us in the palace. And he doesn't belong out in a forest like that. He He should be somewhere else. And... If we can't capture him alive, then we can at least take that, that beautiful skin and it will be a, a seat for you, my Lord, and it's just exactly what we should have. Lakshman was very suspicious, and he kept saying, this is a rakshasha, there's something too perfect about this, this can't be true. But Sita was annoyed with Lakshman for coming between her and her desire to get her husband to do this. And finally, Rama says, well, I can indulge my wife's desire, but Lakshman, you absolutely must stay with her. And Lakshman swears that no power on earth can cause him to leave Sita. He will stay with Sita and Rama will go chase the deer. So the deer, Maricha, is very clever and he keeps luring Rama just farther and farther and farther away till, 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 they're, till they're quite some distance from the ashram. And finally, the deer shows himself enough and Rama realizes he can't capture it and he shoots an arrow, and it takes the life of the deer. But just before the deer dies, he reveals himself to be a rakshasha and in a perfect imitation of Rama's voice, cries out very loudly, Oh, Sita! Oh, Lakshman! Like this, and loud enough magically to be heard by both of them. <gasps> Sita is terribly frightened because she hears that Rama is calling for them. And she suddenly thinks that maybe, in fact, this might have been a trick, and now her husband is dead. And she turns to Lakshman and said, you must go help him. And Lakshman is firm. He says, 
Rama has defeated armies of Rakshasas. There's no power on earth that can touch him. My duty is here with you. Sita becomes frantic. But he called to us. He wouldn't have called to us if he didn't need us. And then she becomes angry. You know, you act as if you've been our friend all this time, but now when your brother really needs you, you stay with me. And then she gets worse. Perhaps you were just hoping something would happen to him so that you could have me as your wife. No. Desire, fear, mistake, confusion. And Lakshman is so um, just overwhelmed by Sita's accusation that he, he feels he has no choice because she starts saying, if you don't go to rescue Rama, I'm going to just kill myself right here. I'm going to take poison, hysterical female threats. You know, I'll step into fire. I'll hang myself. I'll drown myself. She's frantic to, to move Lakshman to go rescue Rama. She's lost. Fear has caused her to lose all sense of proportion. So finally... Very reluctantly, he has, he goes out to help Rama. And as soon as Sita is alone, Ravana, who's been lurking nearby and watching all of this, now he disguises himself as a mendicant, as an ascetic, as a Brahmin, and he goes into the ashram. And Sita, of course, she lives among rishis, and so she knows the, the etiquette. She begins to host him. And then they sit and begin to talk, but Ravana, the, the so-called ascetic, who is really Ravana in disguise, begins to speak in praise of her. And he begins to speak so warmly and so personally to her that Sita becomes alarmed because none of this behavior is not behavior proper to a rishi. And by now, Ravana is just inflamed with his desire for her. And um, she says to him, this is not a proper action on your part. And to be reprimanded by her just enrages him. And he drops all pretense and his natural rakshasha form comes out and he grabs her and he has this um, chariot, this flying chariot. And he takes her into the chariot and he lifts her off the ground and they're going away. Now Sita begins to cry out, you know, rescue me. And she cries to the trees and to the plants and just wailing. And Ravan is just, taking her like this. And Jatayu, the old uh, bird that is the brother of Garuda's vehicle, I mean the brother of Vishnu's vehicle, Garuda, he hears this. And he can fly into the air. So this old eagle does battle with Ravana. And he has talons and he has a beak and the, the chariot of Ravana in the sky has flying mules, they say. It carries it, and he kills each of those animals, and the chariot comes to the ground, and the chariot gets smashed, and this bird just fights furiously. Just this power comes out of him to try to rescue Sita from this evil man. But finally, Ravana cuts off his wings, and when his wings are cut off, he's completely helpless and just battered and broken. The bird is left on the ground, and Ravana just is capable of flying, and he just picks Sita up and flies away with her. And then as they go through the sky, you know, the flowers from Sita's hair and some of her jewels fall onto the ground, and she starts telling Ravana, you know, you call yourself a noble king, but this is such a dishonorable deed. You have no idea what you have in your hand. 
you're, you're, you ha- you're carrying your own doom away with you. And my husband will, will find you wherever you are, and he will rescue me, and he will avenge me. And as Sita was going over a, a valley, she saw creatures down below, and so she took her scarf and wrapped up some of her jewels and dropped it down from the sky in the hope that it would help Rama find her. So now they get to Ravana's palace. And Ravana, even though he could take her by force, he has, in his heart, he has a desire for her to come to him willingly. And he's so vain also that he can't see, um, he can't see loyalty and goodness when it's right in front of him because he doesn't have that kind of dharma in himself. He, doesn't, he can't read it when he sees it. And this is another powerful lesson out of this book, is that we can only often see what we are. So he imagines, because wealth and power and comfort and the praise of of people in the world are everything to him, that when Sita sees, you know, what he has to offer her, and who is Rama anyway but a disinherited king, he doesn't even have a kingdom to give her, what to speak of having to live in the forest, but he has all the power and wealth in the world. So he believes if he just takes her to his palace and shows her who he is, she will immediately be grateful to be with him. So he takes her around, and he does live. He has extraordinary wealth. He shows her everything. You can be queen of all of this. Sita's response to him is, there's not a chance. And she tells him again, how, how dishonorable he is and how evil he is and how he's now sealed his own doom unless he takes her back to Rama, but he absolutely refuses. But when she, um, when she refuses him, first he treats her kindly and tries to win her with kindness, but when she absolutely refuses him and he comes to present his suit to her, and she, in the story, it's described, she plucks a, br- a blade of grass and she lays it between them. You know, don't, don't, you will never cross this line. I'm protected by this blade of grass. And uh, when he finally becomes angry with her and he tells her that I will give you one year to change your mind. And if you refuse to change your mind, I will eat you for breakfast. So then instead of keeping her in his palace and you know, treating her lavishly, he gets the most ugly, meanest Rakshashi's women, and he sends her off to this little enclosed garden and says them to guard her carefully and keep her miserable. And she will stay there for 12 months, and she will either become my wife or she will become my meal. So meanwhile, there's Rama. And as soon as the deer dies and it imitates his voice, he realizes that something really horrible is afoot. And he has a, a terrible feeling inside himself that, that something extremely evil is about to take place. But he reassures himself that Lakshman has promised to stay with Sita. No harm can come to Sita because he's given me his solemn word that he won't leave her. But still, as fast as he can, he starts back to where he had left Sita, but halfway back there he meets Lakshman. And Rama becomes, because every time Sita is threatened, this is when Rama loses his normal equanimity, and he begins to berate Lakshman 
for leaving Sita. How could you leave Sita? I, I told you, now we have been tricked by this Rakshasa. And Lakshman is already beside himself. First Sita is berating him, now Rama is berating him. But the two of them rush back to the ashram, and Sita is nowhere to be found. And they search everywhere, and they ask the plants and the animals and everyone to tell them where can she be. And Rama is almost unhinged with his fear and his grief, and Lakshman has to help him you know, remain calm and think sensibly. And finally, they're going through the forest and they see some flowers that have fallen to the ground and Rama recognizes them as belonging to Sita. And then they find evidence of this great battle, the broken pieces of the chariot and the dead animals and everything. And they just, Rama just feels that Sita has probably already been killed by this terrible Rakshasa. And then they see this nearly dead eagle there, this bird, Jatayu, is there. And he's almost passed away, but he has just enough life force and he stayed alive long enough to tell Rama what has happened to Sita. That Rama has to hear that Sita has been abducted by this great Rakshasa, Ravana, and he assures Rama that in the end you will succeed. And Rama is... uh, you know, overcome with gratitude to this noble creature who sacrificed his life in an effort to save Sita from Ravana. So he, he, this character is always uh, much reverenced as an example of courage and devotion. How sometimes, even at the cost of your life, when evil is being done, it's necessary for you to fight with everything you have because in the end, it will benefit the cause of the Lord. So, so Rama and Lakshmana just keep going through the forest everywhere looking for Sita. They know the direction that she's gone, but they don't know where he has taken her. They just know that she's been abducted. And they meet another Rakshasa that they have to battle who also turns out to have been cursed. And um, when that Rakshasha is freed from his body, he says, you need to find Sugriva. And Sugriva now is a king of the monkeys. In this story also, the monkeys and the bears also play a a role. What they symbolize, I'm not sure. But the monkeys and the bears and man were excluded from the boon that Ravana got. So great souls incarnated as the monkeys and the bears. This is where Hanuman comes into the story eventually. And they become... Rama's allies. So this great being says, you have to go find the monkey king Sugriva. And he was driven from his kingdom by his brother Vali. And the, the, the Rishi, the ascended being now released from the Rakshasha body says, when you make his friendship and he comes to help you, then your success with Sita is assured. So they continue heading in the direction they've been sent. And then on the way they have one more really beautiful encounter which is there is this devotee of Rama known as Sabari. And Sabari had served a great rishi, and when that rishi left his body, she felt that her life was done and she wanted to go with him. And she was told, no, you have to stay in the ashram because one day Lord Rama will come by. And after you host Lord Rama, after you serve him in this ashram, then you also may follow me into the higher regions. So the story of Sabari 
is that she was told that one day Lord Rama was, would come, but she was not told when. So every morning when she wakes up, she has the thought in her mind that this might be the day that Rama comes. So every day she prepares the whole ashram for the Lord's coming. She prepares the refreshments for him. She prepares the seat for him. And then she sweeps the forest path so that not a leaf or a twig or a a tuft of grass will mar his entrance. And for ages, who knows how long, every day Sabri gets up waiting for this is the day that Lord Rama comes. And so she's the perfect example of pious expectation of devoted service. And so then Rama and Lakshman are now in quest of Sita, and they pass by this ashram, and then that is the day for her that Rama comes. She serves him as promised, and as soon as that's done, then her duty there is finished, and she's allowed to ascend. Always the soul needs to be in readiness for the Lord. Okay, I think we'll take a little break now, and then we'll go on from there. So Rama finally comes to the place where he's been sent to find Sugriva, who's the monkey king. But what's, what's going on with Sugriva here is that Sugriva and Vali are two monkeys and they're, they're brothers. And they've had a falling out. And Vali is now in possession of the kingdom. And Sugriva is hiding from his brother. His brother has pursued him all over the uh, world, which we'll find out in a little bit about. But Sugriva is hiding and is very much afraid that um, he sees Rama and Lakshman coming, but he's not sure whether they're friends or they're his brother's agents, and he, he becomes anxious about what, might, might, what they might bring to him. So his chief minister is Hanuman, and Hanuman is the, becomes the, the great example of pure devotion to Rama and Sita. So he wants his minister, Hanuman, to go down there and find out who they are. So Hanuman also can change his form, and he takes on the form of a Brahmin. And he goes to meet Rama and Lakshman. And he's charged to ask them questions and to feel them out and find out whether they're really agents of Vali who want Sugriva dead or whether or not they're, they come in peace. But as soon as Hanuman stands in front of Rama, his intuitive perception that he's in front of pure goodness, in fact, that he's in front of the incarnation of the Lord, overcomes all fears And he immediately knows that this is a friend, and he drops his disguise completely, presents himself as he really is, and tells him that he's the the minister for this monkey king, Sugriva, who's hiding from his brother, Vali, and he tells the whole story about it. Um, I'm, I'm here to find out who you are. And Rama immediately recognizes Hanuman also, because these are great, is a great devotee. Hanuman is the great devotee of Rama. Rama recognizes his devotee. Hanuman recognizes the Lord incarnate. And so the sense of trust um, builds in the first instant. And he um, tells him, you know, how fortunate that we have found you because the Rishi has sent us here to, to look for Sugriva because Sugriva has been told, we've been told is the key to our finding Sita. So they talked together. They told uh, the whole story of how Rama and Lakshmana went to the forest with Sita and then how they were tricked by the magic deer and that now Sita has gone away and they're in quest of Sita, but they understand that Sugriva has to help them. So Hanuman takes them to see his king and and one distance, one part along the way, 
it's too difficult to travel. Only a monkey could move through the forest like this. So Hanuman has the great blessing of carrying the Lord on his own back. And so Lakshman and Rama ride on Hanuman, and Hanuman carries them up to see Sugriva. So Sugriva, because everybody changes their form all the time, assumes the form of a man just to make it easier to converse with Rama. And the two of them feel an immediate bond with each other, and they swear the friendship of brothers that your, your life and your needs are mine, and my life and my needs are yours. And the two of them promise. So Sugriva begins to tell the story about himself and his brother Vali. Vali was the older brother, and therefore by right was supposed to um, come into the uh, come into the rights of the kingdom. And he was ruling the kingdom as the king. But one night, a Rakshasha came to the door, and challenged Vali to this battle. And a Kshatriya is bound by his code of honor that if you're if you're challenged by an appropriate opponent who is of your class and of your capability, it, you, you, it's dishonorable to say no. So Vali had to go out and fight with this Rakshasha. And Sugriva went to witness the fight, and the two fought and fought and fought. And then uh, the Rakshasha dis- disappeared down the mouth of a very deep cave. And so Vali said, I'm going to go in and pursue the Rakshasha there, but Sugriva, you have to stay here at the mouth of the cave, you know, to help me when I come out again. So Vali went in after the Rakshasha, and Sugriva waited and waited and waited and waited, and he heard moans and shouts and signs of battle, and it it was just terrible. And then there was no sound of battle at all, but all this blood started gushing out of the cave. And um, Sugriva became very frightened and somehow convinced that Vali had been killed. And if Vali had been killed, that means that the Rakshasha is going to come out and get him. So he, he waits for a while, and then his fear and impatience overcome him, and he takes a huge rock and he closes off the cave. And then he goes back to the kingdom. Now, when Sugriva comes back and tells what's happened here, the ministers and the council is convinced, as, Vali was, as Sugriva was convinced, that Vali is now dead. And the kingdom can't go on without a king. So in a short period of time, Sugriva has made the king, and he begins to rule in the position of king with all the power and the pleasure that goes with that. But then, uh, after a time, turns out Vali was not killed at all, but it took him a great deal of effort to move the stone and get out of the cave. And when he finally makes it back, what does he find? But he finds his brother on the throne. And not only has his brother abandoned him, he's usurped his entire position. Now, Sugriva falls at his brother's feet and said, I I thought you were dead. I wouldn't have run away if I had known that you were alive. But Vali now allows anger to overcome him. So even though the two brothers have been devoted to each other, he forgets all of their years of devotion and is so enraged with Sugriva for abandoning him and then for usurping his position, that he chases him out of the um, palace, and then he pursues him all around the world, until finally Sugriva hears of this one forest where there's a curse against Vali, and that if Vali steps into that forest, he will die. So Sugriva goes and hides there. And that's where Rama found him. Now, there's a, the teaching here is that both Sugriva and Vali were not bad, people, 
But Sugriva became impatient and afraid, and Vali then became angry. Fear and anger, these are the killing forces of all reason. And so whereas two brothers could have lived in harmony, now they're mortal enemies. All because they, no one would listen, and they contrast this. Sugriva was also, when the kingdom was actually offered to him, and he looked around and saw that all of this could be his, he did embrace it. And the contrast is drawn always between Sugriva and Bharat, who Bharat absolutely refused. He had no desire to take what was not his, and he would rather die than violate Dharma. He was even willing to die to persuade Rama to come back, and only when Rama insisted did he accept it. But Sugriva then appeals, as now because he and Rama are brothers, that, you know, you, the only way I can get back to my kingdom and to my wife and to my life is if you help me to kill Vali, because I, I don't have the strength to kill him myself. He's my older brother. And so Rama promises. Later on, the people who parse apart this epic ask whether that was really the right thing to do or not, and it gets a little worse by the end. But uh, it was, Sugriva's help was essential, Hanuman's help was essential, and so God just has to carry through, just like in the Mahabharata, where Krishna leads Arjuna to do certain things. These are all higher ages descending. You know, Rama's age was, was at... Uh, the end of Treta moving into Dwapara, so it was a, a more of a golden age, but still everything is descending, things are getting slightly worse. So sometimes even the divine incarnation has to do things in order to make his, um, his incarnation a success. So Rama tells, then tells Sugriva the story of what he's been through and how Sita was abducted, And Sugriva says, but we, here in this forest, we saw a a demon carrying a beautiful lady away. And she was, uh, when she fell and she saw, she threw down her packet of her scarf full of jewels. So they rush and they bring it to him. Are these the jewels of Sita? And so he, with great trepidation, he opens it and then he faints away from the implications of this, that in fact she is in the hands of this evil Rakshasha. It's absolutely confirmed. And then there's the story that Rama shows the jewels first because he can't look at them first. Lakshman looks at them. And he says, well, I recognize her anklets, but I don't know if the rest of it belongs to her because Lakshman was so pure-minded and so respectful that he never looked at Sita beyond her ankles the whole time that they were in the forest. <laughs> at least that's what the story, the story is told. <clears throat> so Rama has to identify the rest of it. <clears throat> so now, Sugriva becomes a little concerned that now that Rama knows where, Lakshman, where Sita has been taken or that Sita has been taken by Ravana, they still don't know where she is but they know who has her, that Rama's going to become more interested in rescuing his wife than in restoring Sugriva to the the throne. But Rama says, I've given you my word, and I absolutely will keep it. So Sugriva sort of warns Rama how powerful Vali is, that are you sure you can fight him? And so Rama gives several demonstrations of strength. He hurls a huge... Um, Rakshasha, some many, many miles away, 
But still, Sugriva is not sure that's enough to defeat his brother. And Rama does a, an extraordinary feat with a, one arrow and bends seven trees over. And then Sugriva becomes convinced that maybe he can um, do it. So they make a plan, and this will be the plan, that Sugriva is going to boldly go back to the kingdom and he's going to knock on the door of the palace and he's going to demand that Vali come out to fight with him. And then while they're fighting together, Rama is going to take his arrow and he's going to kill Vali. And then that way they will succeed. This is not so, such an honorable plan, but anyway, this is their plan. So Sugriva goes and he challenges Vali. Vali is amazed to see him so boldly there, but he says, sure, I've been tracing you everywhere trying to kill you. I'm happy to kill you right here. And they start fighting and they're even for a while, but then Vali way gets the upper hand and Rama never fulfills his part of the bargain. But what happens is when the two of them start fighting together, they look so much alike that Rama can't tell which one is Vali and which one is Sugriva. And he's afraid to shoot his arrow for fear he's going to kill the wrong one of the brothers. So finally, Vali has to run away. I mean, Sugriva has to run away back to the forest where he's safe. And then he says to Rama, why didn't you help me? Rama explains what the problem is. So they say, okay, this time I'll go back and fight him again. But this time Rama puts around his neck a flower garland so he can tell which is which. So they go back to the palace and Sugriva's again at the door. And Vali's wife, whose name is Tara, says, look, you just defeated him completely and he's here knocking at the door again. Obviously there's something going on here. And she pleads with her husband don't be so foolish as to go out and accept his challenge again. Um, I've heard, Tara says, that two princes are nearby and maybe he's allied himself with them. But Vali is very angry at being given advice, especially by his wife. This is Vali's Achilles heel, is that when people tell him true things, he just becomes mad about it. So he's true to his own character. And we have again another example His wife gives him good advice. His brother tells him the truth, but he's determined. So he says, I've never turned down a challenge. I'm not a coward. Vali was actually a very brave and noble person, and he was loved by his wife, who was was a good wife, but he was subject to anger. And so we see the acted out in the epic, what we see acted out in people's life, a good person, noble even, strong, righteous, but becomes angry and then loses touch with what's right. So they fight again, and they fight long and hard, the two of them. And finally, Ram gets his shot, and he shoots Vali from behind a tree in the back. And Vali just is so shocked, because this never happens. And he sees that Rama comes out, and he said, you know, how could you have done this to me? But Vali had a a boon from Lord Indra, which was a necklace that made him invincible. And Rama said, it's the only way that you could be killed, so you had to die. Now, there's a tremendous fear all through the um, kingdom because their uh, king has been killed. And Tara realizes that she has to set the example, and she goes to where her husband is, and she has her, her son. Angada is her son. And Sugriva all of a sudden is filled with remorse because these are his own people and now he's killed his brother and 
There was no joy in it for him at all because revenge is not really sweet. It's really terrible. So Vali, just before he dies, he looks at his brother and he says, we could have been friends. We could have shared this kingdom together. We could have had a long and harmonious life, but it was not meant to be. And then Vali says, I'm more to blame than you are because you told me the truth. You repented of your grief, but I wouldn't listen to you. So this is really the appropriate ending for me. And then Sugriva says, I, was, I had a desire for your place. I mean, the, my, my underneath, underneath, when I sealed the cave, I knew that I would then have the kingdom for myself. And sometimes uh, the story asks the question, sometimes we know what we're doing and sometimes we only realize after what we were doing. So lust and greed and anger cause all difficulties. And Sugriva and Vali are always quoted as the perfect example. And there's a prayer. Desire lured me into sin, anger. Desire lured me into sin. Anger lured me into sin. May I be spared. You know, these twin uh, sensations. So Vali is... um, The funeral rites are carried out. Sugriva is crowned as a king, and now everything is in place. But by this point, it's the rainy season. And when the rainy season comes, everything has to stop because you simply can't make it through the rainy season. But Sugriva is perfectly delighted because now he just goes inside his palace. Lakshman and Rama go into a cave to wait out the rainy season, which is four months long. And Sugriva goes into his harem, into the palace. He's been on the run all this time, and now he's back to all his pleasures, and he's extremely happy, and he begins to forget his duty. And Hanuman remembers that Rama is waiting and that Sita is suffering. And when the rain finally stops, he goes to Sugriva, and he says, you must keep your promise before it's too late. When you make a promise, you can't just sit there and wait for the one you promised to come and demand it of you. Again, moral teaching. If you've offered to do something for someone, keep your promise. Don't make them come and beg you again. So Sugriva is right on the edge of not, uh, after all, he's a monkey. (laughs) So he sends out the word that all, he he sends out the word that all the monkey armies should start gathering. And the bears, the whole animal kingdom should start coming. And Rama is becoming very, very impatient. And first he wants to um, threaten Sugriva. I put you on this throne and I can take you off of it as well if you don't help me. But then he reconsiders and realizes that success is more likely with a milder request instead of opening the conversation with anger. So Lakshman goes with a milder request, but he's still quite... um, firm about it. And now Sugriva is, he's just drinking and he's, you know, carousing and he's just in no position to respond responsibly. And the sentry realizes that if Lakshman comes in and realizes that Sita's held by the Rakshasha, Rama and Lakshman have been living in a cave and Sugriva's been carousing in the temple, that in the palace, that Lakshman's anger is likely to be very serious. So first he sends the sun out to talk to Lakshman because the sight of the young man melts his heart and he becomes more mellow about it. 
And finally, um, Sugriva is able to comprehend what he needs to do, but he's able to say, I've already sent for all of the armies. They're all coming. And Lakshman is satisfied. And he goes and tells Rama, the armies are on their way, and the multitudes are gathering. And so the, all the armies come together, and Sugriva says to them, you know, we were going to, we're going to divide up. We're going to go out in all directions, and we're going to seek the whole world until we find Sita. Okay. And then we'll stop here for tonight. That's it. I don't know if you had any questions or not. If not, we're done. Okay. That's it.